Today on CityCast Las Vegas, we have our Friday News Roundup. It's been quite the stormy week in weather and in news, so I have host David Figler and newsletter editor Scott Dickencheese with me to talk through the station casinos demolitions, Vice's reporting on Las Vegas, and what we're going to do when somehow all three of us win the billion dollar lottery. It's Friday, July 29th, 2022. I'm Layla Mohammed, and this is CityCast Las Vegas. All right, team Scott, David, how are we feeling today? Oh, I guess I go first. Hey, I'm doing great. Scott, Layla, good to see you guys. Happy Friday morning. Good to see you too, David. As the host, you always go first. Oh, I guess that makes sense. Although, you know, I'm very egalitarian is my approach to all things. I I just assumed that was podcast etiquette. (laughs) Um, We love it. Welcome to our Friday News Roundups, David. It is your first Friday News Roundup. Welcome. Yes, and and I am now looking at the etiquette guide, and I'm giving you both a curtsy. Kurtz. <laughs> very nice, very nice. Mm-hmm. Um, it was practice. <laughs> so our first topic today is the station casinos demolition. Red Rock has released a report saying that they are planning on demolishing Texas Station, Fiesta Rancho, and Fiesta Henderson, which are three casinos that serve locals in the city. I know that I have a personal sentimental connection to Texas Station. Um, Went there a lot for movies. It was right down the street in North Las Vegas to me. And I'm sad to see it go. I know that none of these properties reopened after the pandemic. But what do we feel like, guys? Do we think locals will miss these properties? Scott? Well, I live a couple miles from the Fiesta Henderson, and my impression generally is that it never really sort of worked its way into the community fabric. I mean, it was a good place to go see movies, and they had a restaurant or two that you would want to visit maybe once a month, but there was, it never really seemed like a, you know, like a center of gravity in the community uh, to the extent that anybody I know ever, you know, went there a lot. So, so consequently, I don't know if there's going to be a lot of sadness when they tear it down depending, of course, on what they put up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're Las Vegans, and we've gotten used to this kind of implosion, uh, explosion sort of thing since, you know, the Mirage came on the scene after they blew up uh, other hotels. And, you know, we, we saw them all go down. And I think everyone has some sentimental attachment, like you do, Layla, to a place where if they were a kid. So I think that's part of our fabric is this kind of sense of, you know, lost, but also moving on and getting over it. I just feel like, you know, we have so many different crises, especially as it relates to people who are unsheltered, et cetera, that, you know, there might be some conversations about these hotels that have hundreds and hundreds of perfectly usable rooms and big commercial kitchen facilities and amenities and stuff like that to, Mm -hmm. you know, be part of that conversation about, you know, especially during the summertime when it's so brutal outside and people to my eye, are literally dying in the streets, that that there would be a, a discussion at least on maybe we can use some of these properties for that purpose. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that they are repositioning the land after demolition for sale. So 
there's no real plans for what the land will be next. But David, I think your idea is really interesting for reusing these rooms and reusing these properties for shelters and possibly serving the community in that way. Um, Scott, I'm interested to know what do you think the barriers around that would be? Well, I think the barriers are fairly obvious. I mean, stations, you know, stands to gain a lot of money from selling the land. They don't stand to gain a lot of money from, you know, letting it be reused in the way David suggests. And I sh- and I'm sure that there could be, you know, tax abatements or some other sort of incentives to get them to try and do that. I have a sort of inbred Vegas cynicism that says, you know, that's not the sort of thing that that happens here. So I have, you know, I have doubts. I think it's a great idea. I think it certainly merits a debate. You know, not even as a shelter per se, but just, you know, transitional housing. Look, we have a lot of shelters. And I'm going to say this about the Fertitas who who own the property. They are very philanthropic minded, generally speaking. I know that they, you know, utilize that property when it was shut down for COVID testing. You know, there were some other things that they had done. Uh, you know, they did food distribution from there. I believe they have a very strong relationship with Catholic charities and funding funding that outfit. You know, shelters are a last-ditch desperation to get people inside. They're not pleasant places. You don't have a lot of privacy. There's a lot of very, very strict rules or a lot of barriers to getting in. Having a place with private rooms, commercial kitchens, amenities, where you could put in social services as a temporary housing seems to me to be a no-brainer. And yet, you know, this 300,000 square foot plus Texas station, the other properties are big too, probably about six, 700 rooms between the three of them. Um, this is a valley-wide problem, and everyone in the valley should be interested. I, I wish we did have these discussions, Scott, to get to those numbers. I just don't think it's ever going to happen to even discuss it, let alone do something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I agree with you, David. And you know, on top of all that, there's I'm sure that there are some sort of multi-layered zoning considerations. There's neighbors that will have to be you know alerted and consulted if any kind of reuse is considered, and which will bring out you know the nimbyism in full sail. So the obstacles seem insurmountable to me, but it'd be nice if there was some crack of daylight there that suggested some possible uh, thwarting of my cynicism. Thwart. We need to thwart. That's one of yes. the uh, mission statements of uh, CityCast Las Vegas. And who knows, maybe our conversation, David, will kick off the broader social discussion. <laughs> uh, one can only hope, right, Layla? <laughs> let's Let's keep that hope alive. Let's keep talking about it and keep hoping that our community can find some way to use these properties better. And I think maybe that this could be a part of, you know, Las Vegas is a transient place. Things don't stay long. Um, We might be too trigger happy with demolishing these properties and kind of just getting rid of older buildings for something new to come up. I think we're at this point now where we're sort of trained to not think twice about it. You know, we saw some historic buildings or at least potentially historic things getting torn down, you know. Uh, And history in Las Vegas, you know, historic things aren't necessarily hundreds of years old. Sometimes they're just decades old. You know, a lot of Mm -hmm. people were very sad to hear that the Mirage is getting rid of their famous volcano um, and tearing it down. Now, I don't know if you could repurpose it for anything. I mean, maybe, you know, like a soda pop dispenser or something somewhere cool. (laughs) But people get sad when things get torn down. And that's only from 1989. 
Yeah, I know. I know Texas Station has a lot of personal history for me, but I don't know if we keep it around, if it will be, if it will turn into a historic place in Las Vegas. I doubt that, which is probably why they chose to demolish it. It's a cool space. I mean, these hotels were designed to have people want to come in and, and, you know, there were amenities and things like that. And one of the barriers to some of the population of people who are unsheltered is getting to go somewhere that they want to go as opposed to where they're being forced to go. And if you had a nicer facility, again, just for temporary, uh, temporary housing, that would be so innovative and thoughtful. And, you know, those are two words that don't come up often in these type of conversations. Yeah. Unfortunately. And I think there's something to be said about these being local casinos. I don't know in my lifetime if I've ever seen a huge property off of the strip like this get demolished. And these were casinos serving locals. I attended them quite frequently for movies, bowling, just birthday parties. And so do you guys remember or can you guys think of any local casinos that were demolished recently? And what do you think the difference is between demolishing a local casino from demolishing a casino on the Strip? Well, in my case, I no previous local casino uh, teardowns come to mind, but to me, something like the Dunes, which was torn down to make way for Bellagio, that had an iconic feel to it. It was, you know, it was a fixture of the Strip and in people's memories. I don't think Fiesta Henderson sort of has that iconic feel. And while small properties have come and gone small smaller casinos um i'm thinking of one that was on the corner of uh maryland and flamingo that was a business decision and and look i think that is the argument on their side is that sometimes you have to make business decisions but i think when you get to the the strata and size of stations casino and the wealth uh that it generates and continues to generate and especially off the locals market how can we take these sort of properties that aren't on the strip that, you know, might have a business sense to demolish, but there might also be a business incentive to to repurpose. Sometimes thoughtfulness and capitalism can live in the same room. It just is a little bit more of a, a settlement conference. <laughs> yeah. Thoughtfulness just has to sit in the corner. Yeah. Yeah. And mind its own business until we call on you. <laughs> um. That's. I think that's a good point, David. And I'll, I'll be interested to see if this land does get repurposed after being sold for maybe a more touristy attraction or for something that will serve the locals again. All right. So on to our next topic. The Vice Media Conglomerate brought an army of writers to Las Vegas to craft a guide. David, I'd love for you to give us the rundown and what we need to know on the surface level of this. I mean, it's not a particularly innovative approach. Uh, Vice, like many other media outlets in the past, has put together a package of articles and videos, you know, under the heading Travel Guide to Las Vegas. They went for what I'm sure they believe to be a more edgy, uh, Hunter S. Thompson-inspired gonzo trip to Las Vegas for their mostly, I think, East Coast writers to kind of pop into Vegas around, it sounded like May, uh, and to write bait-clicking uh, headlines uh, to get people to read the stories, which I think Scott and I have slogged through, and I think we have opinions. Scott. <laughs> Scott, I'd love to hear, as someone who's been writing about Las Vegas for a while, I'd love to hear your take on 
the slew of articles and videos and content that you've gone through? Well, we might have to wait until the headache subsides for the whole uh, <laughs> oh, download here. But oh, Scott. <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? I mean, I have some overall philosophical thoughts we can get to later, but my immediate thoughts are like, you know, some of it was just, you know, they, these guys just strapped on their Hunter Thompson shooting irons and came to town for an adventure, you know. And I think they probably think that it's edgy and shocking, you know, a little bit shocking and whatnot. But my impression as I was reading it was like, this could have been cooked up by some, you know, like LVCVA black ops team, you know, because it plays perfectly into that idea of, you know, Vegas is where you come to have a real bender and, and really live out your sort of, the palace of, of wisdom is reached by the road of excess, you know, sort of lifestyle choices. So, And I thought Vogue was the poet, Scott. <laughs> that was very poetic. <laughs> that was very Vogue Robinson poetic level. That was cool. I try and bust out a little gem every now and then. No, uh, you spit, baby. Wordsmith. You spit. Yeah. Um, for those who don't know, Scott, what is LVCVA? Oh, Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority. So they're the, the group tasked with promoting Vegas tourism. So this seems like it entirely dovetails with some aspect of their mission to, you know, make Vegas appealing to whatever demographic, you know, vice uh, is is hoping to reach. It was very reminiscent, Scott. Do you remember those early Cosmopolitan commercials that just the right amount of bad or whatever it was? Exactly. If part of Vice's angle is to do it differently or edgy, they certainly missed the mark with this because there have been probably 20 very similar packages uh, in the past. And the, you know, there, there's so many ways they could have redone it. The thing that I always wonder is like, if you really wanted to be edgy, take a bunch of Vegas writers and put them in Brooklyn and have them do the same sort of thing. Like that would be really fun. So instead of like one of the stories in the Vice package, Layla was, um, you know, I went on three Tinder dates and here's yes. where they took me. And it was just yeah, I saw that one. And it was like, well, you know, uh, like put a Vegas writer in Brooklyn and hit off of their like stereotypes. You know, I went on a Bumble date with a beekeeper. You know, it's just it's the same level of outrageous <laughs> approach to trying to describe. Say, and, and again, like Scott says, you know, they're aiming for their demographic and and they probably hit the nail on the head. Uh, the opening video for the series is something that I slogged through, and it was just crazy, filled with inaccuracies and horrifically contrived narrative. Uh, you, you know, there are two Elvis impersonators in the first 15 seconds uh, that are shown. Uh, one's quoted. The guy does card counting, where the card counter talks to him about, you know, how he's going to get his eyeballs pulled out with a pair of pliers, and then he loses all his money at the table, and then. They also say Las Vegas, where prostitution is legal, which, of course, is not true. So, yeah, I mean, just a real hackneyed approach to it. Just like Scott said, you know, uh, guns ablazing. It seems like they wanted to, like, really inhabit every cliche. And so they send a guy to do, you know, to do a dive bar tour of Las Vegas, um, looking for the other Las, you know, the real Las Vegas in dive bars where you'll find, I think he called, like, the ecosystem of people who keep the town running as if casino air conditioning, you know, workers can also be found in like PTs instead of like some some slimy dive bar. And in the in the process, by the way, he manages to sort of slight, you know, Atomic Liquors and Huntridge Tavern and Dino's, you know, places beloved by locals, which I think is actually fine because next time I go to Atomic, I don't want to see a bunch of like cool hunting bozos, 
hanging around because they read this Vice article. So Too um, late. Just joking. <laughs> Sorry, Atomic. Love you. How do you write a, a boring article, a, a boring guide to sex parties in Las Vegas? They figured it out. <laughs> Oof. And how do you call how do you call the Hunter's Tavern not scuzzy enough? <laughs> they, they have, in a, a tip of the hat to the Cosmo, just the right amount of scuzz. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think in that article you see, you know, it's driven more by writerly considerations than than an actual journey to find the best dive bar in Vegas. One thing I want to go farther into is kind of like this parachute journalism. All of these writers from outside of Vegas trying to find the real essence of Vegas. Um, how do you think that could have been better if, say, local writers were exploring their city and telling Vice more about what they see on a daily basis living in Vegas and giving tourists tips that way? Well, I think you saw it in this package with the one article that I can think of that was written by a local a local writer, Nicholas Russell, who wrote about how to have a great night in Chinatown. It was a good so, piece. Yeah, it was a good yeah. piece, and it had like that lived experience. Mm-hmm. And it was it was useful to both you know outsiders and maybe locals who haven't explored Chinatown to its fullest extent. So that's you know that's an approach they could have taken. I've actually been involved in writing some guidebooks, um, mostly for Time Out uh, when they were doing actual physical guidebooks for Las Vegas. You know, it, it's a monotonous task to try to make you know like everything sound interesting. So we talked about how Vice missed the mark, but. Were there any redeeming qualities that you guys saw? Your favorite item or your favorite piece of advice, anything like that? I know that I really enjoyed the Sober Guide to Las Vegas. I thought that that was pretty fruitful, gave some good recommendations um, to a city still trying to figure out how we can cater to that kind of population. So, Scott, do you have anything that you enjoyed from the Vice Guide? Not really, um, other than, you know, I, I mean, I just think it, it was so hackneyed in so many ways. But I will say this about this package in particular in parachute journalism generally. Uh, you know, if I had 5,000 eyes, I'd, I'd roll them all at this, at this Vice package. <laughs> but generally speaking, I'm not bothered by, you know, parachute journalism that comes into Vegas and, and gets things wrong because they're not writing for us. Mm. And, you know, every time one of these things comes out, you know, local Twitter is all <laughs> like, they don't get us. They don't, you know, they didn't check out the Arts District or whatever. But nobody in New York cares about the Las Vegas Arts District. And so... Yeah. So when those guys, you know, plop into town and write something that's sort of very obvious, like, oh, you know, go see the fountains. I don't, I don't bother even snarking about that anymore because that's just, it just exists in a different plane from the one that, that we all move through. And to your original point, Scott, it feeds a lot of the machine. LVCVA uh, and the hotels love this kind of stuff. I mean, because yeah. it brings more, more people. Did you like anything about it, David? You know, I, I appreciated that if you can kind of get through the muck, uh, there were a lot of call outs to some cool things, you know, like people that I think are sort of important in the culture or places that I think are important to culture. A lot of them got, got shout outs, uh, which is cool. And I'm glad that they did talk to some local people to find some things. I mean, you know, you don't just randomly find James Trees, one of our, you know, storied local chefs. Uh, but you know he's he's mentioned in one of the stories as well. the The secret of the Circus Circus Steakhouse comes out as well. So there's some neat things in there. You just have to get through these really, in my eye, these horrific frameworks that you know that try to shape 
our community in a way that that's not, um, to use the word again, thoughtful. Mm. Well, thank you guys for that thoughtful discussion. Um, and I think I think readers of the Vice Guide to Las Vegas will either love it or hate it. But I mean, there are some really good call outs. Velveteen Rabbit, I think they do call out the Arts District um, and some good businesses. So I mean, if we can say anything, go patronize Las Vegas businesses. All right. So our last topic of discussion today will be what will we be doing when we win the billion dollar lottery? Scott, can you tell us a little bit about why we can't buy tickets in Las Vegas? Well, just lotteries are not legal here, and I don't think that the casino industry wants them to be legal here, and so they won't be legal here. So it means good business for those, you know, those shacks on the state line where you can buy lottery tickets. I think the RJ posted something on Twitter yesterday of the lines outside of someplace, I don't, maybe in Baker, I can't remember where it was, but you know, which which really happens every time the you know the lotto jackpot rises to a you know, stratospheric heights, a lot of Las Vegans trek out to these places and stand in line. And, you know, the media predictably makes a circus out of it. What are you going to do when you win the billion dollars? Oh, it's up to a billion, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that I think the cash out is 603 million. Wow. So that's just that's just a shame. Government just <laughs> taking their taste. Yeah. Well, plus, I think you get less when you when you cash it out than if you take it as an annuity. And as I said in yesterday's newsletter, I'd probably buy 174 million double doubles at In and Out. So I think that would be Plan A. Uh, mm-hmm. Plan B, maybe I'd buy, I'd fund a museum. Nice, David. What would you do with your winnings? I, uh, you know, I would go in on the uh, the Seacast Vegas pool. You know, but how much? I, I, whenever Lotto Fever hits, because it's so close, and like Scott said, I mean, it's not, it's not just against the law; it's unconstitutional. It was written into our constitution at the onset, before gambling was even a glimmer in, you know, a blackjack dealer's eye. Before there was a Las Vegas, Nevada had made lotto's illegal. But you know, I'm always reminded of my mom. Uh, God bless her. She was well into her 80s. Uh, and whenever the lotto got over a certain level, she and one of her friends would hop in the car and drive all the way out to state line to wait in line for, you know, hours to buy what I guess would be like $50 worth of tickets. And then I would tell my mom, like, you know, mom, you live right across from the Westgate. You've got better odds putting that 50 bucks down on Pi Gal. And she used to say, well, you know, for a few days, that $50 gave me the hope that I would be a multimillionaire. And even though I know I'm going to lose, it was worth that investment. And by the way, it was $100. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and uh, spoiler, mom never won the lotto. Uh, so, and, you know, and look, uh, the same criticism of gambling in general uh, is often levied at the lotto. Scott's 100% right that the gaming industry doesn't want that particular level of competition. But lottos are a particular breed of, you know, uh, what is often called regressive tax. I mean, it's interesting. There are, there are definitely arguments that it fits in with the rest of gaming that exists in the state. There are arguments that it is uniquely horrible for a community, uh, especially one that already has lots of gaming revenue that's being generated amongst locals. So, I, you know, look, if, if, if it did land in our laps, 
uh, short of trying to buy the Texas station to turn it into a temporary housing community center with the bowling alley and the movie theater still intact. Yes, thank um, you. But that would be what I would do with my portion is to try to salvage that. Although uh, that might be cost prohibitive. I try to do good with my money, Layla. Come on. Very nice to hear. Okay. For me, the main value of these lottos is the conversations that they generate. I mean, we were on vacation last week and we spent a, a little bit of time talking about like, what do we do if we win? You know, even though we know, I don't think we even bought tickets. I think, my, well, my wife did, but uh, regardless, you know, and so it allows you to sort of like. <laughs> and maybe more than you know, Scott, you should go <laughs> check, check, check the receipts. <laughs> I think it allows you to envision like a different way of living, but it also forces you to envision that different way of living along the lines of values that you already have. And so like we always talk about, well, we would move the whole family to, you know, beautiful place A or beautiful place B, or we'd buy all these places where we could all, you know, as the the whole entire family from, you know, four generations of us, you know, congregate together because that's, you know, that's just a value we hold dear and we would use, you know, our vast wealth to accomplish that. And so I, I think it's fun to sort of envision a different way of living, a different way of style of life, even if, you know, as David points out, it's never going to happen. Yeah. Well, it happens to some one person. <laughs> exactly. And maybe this year it will be me because I think I will be buying my first lotto ticket, hoping, praying that, I don't know, I come away with however many millions and I'll probably never be seen again and just go off and travel the world and... Um, as much as I love city cast. Well, for selfish <laughs> selfish reasons, I hope you lose the lotto <laughs> so that you stay with us because you Darn are awesome. David. I can't believe you just jinxed me. Hey, Layla, if I slip you a few bucks, will you buy me a ticket too? Oh, yeah. Scott, you. you just went you. to the dark side. <laughs> me and Scott, we got uh, this. All right, guys. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me for our Friday News Roundup. It was so fun. Um, and I do hope we, if any of us wins the lotto, I would just like to say that we should split it. Oh, yeah, definitely splitting. All right, Scott, David, thank you. I had fun today. So did I. So did I. That's all for today here on CityCast Las Vegas. Our lead producer is Sonia Cho Swanson, and our producer is Layla Mohammed. We also had Lizzie Goldsmith joining us again for our roving producer. We love you, Lizzie. Our newsletter editor is Scott Dickensheets, and our hosts are David Figler and Vogue Robinson. Music is by OG Moose and All the Kimonos. We record this show on the traditional homelands of the Nuwuvi, the Southern Paiute people. If you enjoyed the show, why not tell a friend? Rate the show and leave us a review. And don't forget to subscribe to our amazing morning newsletter. We'll be back on Monday for more news from around the city. Take care. <laughs> oh, one more thing about the Vice article. There was one article and they were just like, you know, where to get high in, in, in parks in Las Vegas and stuff. They, they did Bryce. They did Zion. I, come on. Oh, but um, if I did have a billion dollars from the lotto, I would probably buy a place that was accessible to Bryce and Zion because <laughs> they are very, very beautiful.